Thank you. Good evening, everyone, once again, and welcome to this uh, Indic Book Club author Q&A. And today we have a very, very interesting book subject and author. So the author is Anish Gokhale. The book is Battles of the Maratha Empire, and the subject is uh, Indian history. And I am delighted to welcome Anish to this uh, IBC author Q&A. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So, uh, first of all, let's get started with you, Anish, because uh, you are very unlike some of the authors we have had in the past. You actually sailed the seven seas. Is that right? Yes, I'm in Merchant Navy by profession. I'm a navigating officer and uh, writing is a hobby for me, actually. So, let me start off by asking, so what led you into this, uh, what led to your interest in history? Yes. Uh, before I come to that, I would just take a moment to thank Indic Academy uh, for this, not only this author session, but uh, for all the support they've given to me as an author throughout uh, not only this book, but even my previous book, Brahmaputra. Uh, even I believe the launch of this book was via Indic Academy, where we had a session chaired by uh, Yogini Deshpande and uh, Shefali Vaidya. And then throughout the journey of this book, uh, Indian Academy has been a huge help, you know, getting the book out to a lot of people. So many thanks for that. So Absolutely. And uh, one a note to our viewers that first of all, and I should have said this at the very beginning, but I'll say it now, this will be available on YouTube in a few days. Uh, so you'll be able to watch it and it will be you know, available uh, online. Second, if you have any questions, please send them uh, via the chat or the Q&A window. And once we are done with the Q&A, we'll open it up uh, for questions and I'll go through the uh, questions received on chat and uh, uh, you know we can ask Anish those questions. And we should also be going live on Facebook. So while I ask you that question, Anish, so what led to your interest in history and specifically Maratha history? Because, you know, you have also written your first book was uh, Brahmaputra and uh, uh, on, on uh, you know, the home battle. Uh, but your primary area of interest, right, and expertise has been Maratha history. So can you ask these two questions, history and why specifically Maratha yes. history? So I've been fond of uh, reading, writing right from a very young age. I've also been very fond of trekking, hiking, which in Maharashtra you find a lot of opportunity to do. And a lot of hill forts, a lot of hill forts with a very colorful and varied history. Uh, you know, very inspiring history also. So somewhere from that, my interest in Maratha history has been uh, generated. You know? When you go up and down those ports and wonder as to how these really form the bedrock of the history in this part of the country. You go on to Chhatrapati Shivaji and then from that, once that uh, interest has been created, it's one step uh, at a time from that. And so as I read more and more, I got more and more interested. It finally led to my first book, that is Sayadris to Hindu Kush, that was in 2012, uh, about nine years back. Then I wrote a book on Lachit Barfukal, uh, as the Assamese commander, because another topic I'm very interested in. One of the reasons I was very interested in is because of the common commonalities, such as the fight against the Mughals, uh, use of the guerrilla warfare, which is again you find in common with uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji and the Marathas. 
and finally we come to my latest book battle of the maratha empire which is about the uh, maratha and the various battles they fought throughout a span of around 200 years correct and in your book you begin with i believe the battle uh, of pratapgarh right which uh, which chhatrapati shivaji fought and and uh, you know most of us who have heard of that battle will remember it from that famous encounter at the, the pratapgarh fort with afzal khan and which led to his death but there is a lot more uh, around that battle any particular reason why you picked that as the first battle to uh, you know start the book of I should like to share a small anecdote here uh, regarding this. Uh, I was on ship. I was a cadet trainee, actually, and my chief officer was a Sri Lankan. Uh, obviously, he had absolutely no idea about uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji or Mughal Sahitya. Uh, there was something in the news regarding Chhatrapati Shivaji, uh, maybe something to do with the politics of India. Anyhow, so he asked me one morning, uh, "Why is Chhatrapati Shivaji so great for you?" And for me, it was like this is not a question you're supposed to ask him. <laughs> this is a question you know the answer to. But I actually uh, couldn't answer him in a short, concise manner. You know why I find Shivaji Maharaj to be. I could give a very long answer that he fought against the Mughals and did this and that, and the coronation was there. A very long rambling, twenty-five minutes conversation I had. But to pinpoint his greatness. i would say pratapgarh campaign is the best example because all the facets of his personality come out in that one battle so whether it's strategizing whether it's mental toughness whether it's you know uh, not giving in to pressure because you find afzal khan comes from bijapur he starts destroying temples he starts destroying idols but shivaji maharaj doesn't fall for all that he keeps to his strategies uh, we find that he inspires people with his swaraj ideal which is very early in his life he is only 28 29 years old there is nothing really to say that a big kingdom or swaraj is going to be built from this point nobody knows the future but you have somebody like kanoji jedhe who believes in this ideal and gives up his entire um, jagir or watan and goes with this idea called swaraj then you have a very strategic placement of soldiers you find uh, shivaji maharaj is also you know involved in a you can imagine his mental state and you find his own wife has died during the course of this entire campaign but he still doesn't say that let's suspend everything and go back because he has committed so much politically to it that he cannot have that decision in his hand in spite of all this in spite of knowing that afzal khan has before in his life killed people after coming to a meeting It is not the first time. Abdul Khan already done it once before in 1638, where he has called somebody for a meeting and killed him. So this is a and, very and Abdul Khan was a physically very imposing person, right? Yes, he's physically very imposing. He is probably about 10-15 years older than Chhatrapati Shivaji, who is just about touching 30. So you know, uh, physically it will be a huge difference for him. So all these things put together, I uh, decided to put the Pratapgarh campaign really shows Chhatrapati Shivaji's personality in all its splendor. <clears throat> and uh, uh, if you if you look at uh, this, right, there's one more battle that I want to talk about, which is the Battle of Salher. I think which took place in 1672. Yes. So in the meantime, 
what uh, you start off your book by describing chhatrapati shivaji's strategy of uh, he took fort building to a to the level of a science and art yeah. and uh, the forts were all i mean i think you uh, you write in your in your first chapter itself that the uh, the first indication or, or the surest proof that a particular you know uh, uh, on top of a hill a structure served as a fort was if you found a pond there for water yes so tell us a little bit about uh, what led to shivaji you know getting into this uh, fort building uh, as a strategy for protecting his 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 kingdom or expanding it and uh, uh and and there's one other related question what i'll ask that a little later but uh, can you talk about the, that shivaji you know chhatrapati shivaji's uh, yes. uh, strategy of forts yes so forts had existed in maharashtra even before chhatrapati shivaji but what he did was that he took them to a different level he did a lot of changes uh, one of them was to see to it that there was sufficient water supply in fact there is a book called agnyapatra Uh, which has been authored in 1715 or 1716 by Ramchandra Pant Amatya, who is one of his ministers. This is many years after his death, that is Chhatrapati Shivaji's death. And in that book, we find the entire administrative qualities of Shivaji Maharaj. Coming to fort specifically, it is mentioned that before we take up the work of any kind on the fort, any kind of want to build a wall, defense, want to put soldiers on it, want to build houses on it, first and foremost. You should take care of the water supply, which is, I think, a very uh, practical, logical, and common sense statement, which unfortunately we keep missing out on even today in the planning our cities and towns. So, so first take care of the water supply because that is from where all life is going to start. Okay? If you don't have water, there is no point having a big garrison on the fort. You're going to need water for the soldiers, water for the elephants, horses, camels, everybody. So this is why water was very important, and uh, which is why I said that if you cannot find uh, any kind of such water source on a hill, it means it did not serve as a fort because this was the primary criterion that Chhatrapati Shivaji had put forward. And again, many other changes were made. As I mentioned earlier, also forts were in usage. But even you can go back all the way to the 11th, 12th century. Even before that, you can go back, where you find that uh, the hills. And the hill forts of the Maharashtra have been used for defensive purposes, but Shivaji Maharaj, he was very uh, correct in his planning. He knew which places to fortify, which passes were controlled from where, which forts are important. The forts itself he fortified in various ways, such as building double walls, we call Chilkati Buruj in uh, Marathi, then Rajgarh. Uh, other defense mechanism having multiple entry points and you know various. And I And I think Anish, you write that uh, in the double forts, the width between the first and the second wall was very, very narrow, and that was for a reason. Yes, you find this at uh, Rajgarh. Uh, you find that there is a double wall, and the uh, uh, reason was that even if the uh, front wall was breached, even the first wall was breached, it would be still a task to breach the second wall. And not only that, but they would be trapped in a Small alleyway, kind of, you know, a small corridor where they could be easily uh, killed from above. Uh, another correlated change was, you know, having a door in the shape of a cow's mouth, which had, you know, gomukh structure, where you 
uh, the invading army has to take a sharp right turn as soon as they enter. So this means that you are basically uh, inviting them into a blind spot. So these were kind of you know changes that were made, and uh, they really stood the test of time. See, one uh, one tactic and one one strategy of warfare that uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji really you know uh, innovated upon was guerrilla warfare, which was uh, never to. enter into a headlong battle with the enemy in open grounds where numerical superiority would ensure that you know the other side with its cannons and all would uh, have an advantage and i i think we see this in the other battle that you talk about the battle of palkhed which was i think in 1728 i think yes with the peshwa baji rao who was the second peshwa after his father died balaji vishwanath bhat i think died after entering into uh, you know sign getting the mughal emperor to sign a treaty and he dies shortly after that and then uh, the young peshwa you know uh, bajirao takes over and in 1728 he has this uh, it's uh, described by some people as one of the greatest military campaigns uh, and victories do you want to tell us a little bit about that because it for some reason it uh, is uh, you know one of my most favorite uh, uh, battles uh, to read about Yes, it's it's a very interesting and fascinating battle. Again, we find Peshwa Bajirao is very young; he is about twenty-seven, twenty-eight years old. Again, he's facing a Nizam who is around forty-five, fifty, maybe perhaps more than that. Experience quite quite a lot. So, in fact, this battle has been mentioned in by Viscount uh, Montgomery in History of War, and I have actually chanced upon that book. It's a fat thousand-page tome, and in that entire book, you'll find about two or three pages devoted to India. You know, the entire history of warfare, you find three pages to give to India. Everybody else is there: Greeks, Romans, Chinese, you know, Teutonic Knights, and Americans, French. Everybody. India finds three pages. Out of those three pages, I believe one whole entire page is given to Palkit. And one of his statements that was the. Um, example of strategic mobility it comes from that book so why it is so famous why it is so unique is that is the first battle where you find that the marathas have gone from you know hill based guerrilla kind of warfare to open plains because this is still not outside maharashtra but the place you are talking about on the godavari it is still heading into the northern parts of the country at palkhed correct so And the beauty of it is that Peshwa Bajirao manages to trap the Nizam and win without causing a huge amount of bloodshed. Not a not a lot of people die here. The and I think the water. Is, and I think Anish, water plays a big role even there. Water plays a big role over there. The scarcity of water. Because first of all, Peshwa Bajirao harasses the Nizam by making him run in all sorts of directions. In fact, cover some two thousand miles distance in two months prior to the battle. Then you find that now people usually say that Peshwa Bajirao is great because of his swift cavalry movements. He managed to move his cavalry very fast. But that is just one factor. What really sets him apart is that he manages to lay sieges that are totally watertight. He manages to trap his enemies in such a manner that they have absolutely no way of escaping. Which is what happens at Palkhed. We find that the Nizam comes south, trying to catch Peshwa Bajirao, who is trying to attack Aurangabad, which is in Nizam's territory. 
and the Peshwa also managed to come from north to south. Finally, they are at a place called Palkhed. The Palkhed is a point where both want to reach at the same time. It's a kind of junction where the Nizam knows Pesha Bajirao is going to cross, Pesha Bajirao knows Nizam is going to cross because that's the only place they're going to reach. Uh, that is common to both. It's at a river crossing of Puntamba. The greatness of Pesha Bajirao is in knowing that the Nizam plans to cross on what date. Accordingly, he takes a pass that is totally unfrequented by cavalry or soldiers, uh, known as Kasar Bari. Okay. And he reaches Palkhet three days before the Nizam does, uh, or two or three days. Over here, he takes control of all the water sources. One is the Shiv River, there are ponds, then there is a Banjara tribe. The Banjara tribes across the country are involved in supplying armies with food and water because they are nomads, they know where to procure food and water from in any place. Peshawajara buys off all the entire Banjaras and purchases all the food from them. The Nizam comes to know that Peshawajara is in the vicinity of Alkhed, he has to leave his entire artillery behind and somehow cross the Godavari trying to catch the Peshwa. He reaches Palkhed. Again, there is a sort of uh, what you call a circling uh, siege where he is driven to Palkhed and not to any other direction. He is driven to believe that he is going to find succor at Palkhed in terms of supplies. Once he reaches there, he is completely circled by Pesha Bajara. And for three days, there is no water reaching his camp, the Nizam's camp. In case it was a kind of just uh, stopping the supply of food, maybe survive maybe 15, 20 days at a stretch. But without water, an army cannot survive more than three days. It has to hand water supply. So you find that 28th or 29th of February, uh, this Battle of Palkhet takes place where he tries to break through. And um, nearly five, six days later, you find that the treaty has been signed between the Pesha Bhajra and the Nizam. So it's a very unique battle where he managed to use water, uh, the scarcity of water, uh, his you know, intelligence network uh, very usefully and with minimum bloodshed at battle is one. And I think uh, uh, the Nizam signed the treaty and a few years later he, he, he went back on the treaty and there was another battle I think between the Peshwa and, uh, and uh, the Nizam that was fought a few years later but uh, we'll not talk about that one. Now see I, I, I want to spend some time on a very, very interesting pivotal moment in Indian history from 1757, where you had the, bat, the, the Battle of Plassey. And about three, four years later, it is uh, followed by the third Battle of Panipat. And I think in 1772, there is uh, yet another battle. And then in 1775, I think uh, uh, you have... Uh, 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 the first anglo baratha war right yes. so uh 1757 is usually uh, referred to in 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 a very you know uh, kind of a pivotal sense that this was what marked the ascendancy or the beginning of the ascendancy of the uh, east india company rule in india where they defeated uh, you know sirajuddaulah and all and you say that uh, 
You know, the real pivotal battles uh, really came later, but I want to start with the third battle of Panipat in 1761. You talked about the importance of water and securing supplies, which is what uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji used to do, which is what uh, Peshwa Bajirao did. And yet you find that when the actual battle against Ahmad Shah Abdali's armies took place, it was a hungry, thirsty, weakened Maratha army. And this is, you know, too short a time to get into all the details and ask you, I mean, a hundred questions about it, but what went wrong? I mean, so many things I'm right went wrong, but I still can't get over the fact that the, the number of soldiers, the Maratha soldiers that died that day was huge. It was unimaginably huge. Yes. So... Actually, this topic has been done threadbare at all times. And uh, the many reasons which came together, actually, for that debacle to happen. Yes, one of the main reasons was that they were carrying a lot of camp followers. Now, warfare had changed from the time of Chhatrapati Shivaji to Keshav Bajirao to when the Marathas went up to Panipat. Warfare had changed drastically. And this was an open field battle, which the Marathas were trying to do in which they would have just one grand concentration and that would be the end of the topic. They unfortunately carried a lot of pilgrims and camp followers with them, which encumbered them. In fact, the number of camp followers, etc. were around three to four times the number of fighting soldiers. And their strategizing before that was a bit wrong as to get trapped in Panipat and not have all those camp followers safely at Delhi or Agra or some place which was in their hands. So this basically created a situation where they had to break open and move south because their people needed uh, supplies. Having said that, there were other reasons also. Uh, what we are trying to see, what we see here at Panipat is that there is an attempt to you know put the onus of the battle in the hands of the artillery in 1761. Now, this is something that becomes very commonplace in Europe in the late 1780s, 1790s, especially under Napoleon and Wellesley, where you find that the artillery and infantry combine and they lead the attack and they basically destroy the opponent cavalry infantry and then everybody else takes over. But this kind of battle formation required very good leadership. It required, you know, absolutely unflinching support for whoever was leading them. You cannot have people who are going to ask questions about strategy uh, on the battlefield. And that kind of professionalism and discipline maybe was not present among the Marathas. It was not present anywhere for that point of matter. Where, you know, where a decision was taken on strategy and it was followed unflinching without any questions being asked. Which is why this kind of uh, strategy where you use the cannons and artillery to first blow a hole through Ahmad Shah Abdali's army and then just try and get past. It didn't succeed because it required a lot of discipline from other people to stay back and not fight till this job of destroying was complete. So you find a situation where the artillery had done its job but before it completely blasts a hole in the Afghan army, or Maratha cavalry has decided to jump forward. So this is one of 
the actual battlefield reasons that actually happened. Uh, so various reasons came together, uh, too many camp followers, not following strategy properly, uh, not being aware of what is uniting your opponents. And so that's why you had to pick the bag. Now, the, now, you know, despite what one may think that this would have been a very heavy, debilitating blow to the Maratha Empire, they recovered very, very fast after that, right? So they rebuilt and they gained, uh, you know, they, they even went all the way to, uh, I think, uh, where was this? Uh, Atok and beyond, right? The Maratha. Uh, and then you write then in that in, I think, 1772, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Maratha flag flew over the Red Fort. Yes. So you find that uh, from 1761, there is one entire decade of trying to stabilize because obviously there being a big setback a lot of important people have died who would otherwise be taking all the decisions and so entire decade passes so in this entire decade it's very interesting what's happening on the other side of india that is in bengal 1757 the british have managed to uh, win plus a which basically just gives them a small foothold in bengal nothing more but more importantly they win buxar in 1765 now, it is interesting to note that two years prior to Panipat in 1759, uh, there is a communication between Dattaji Sindhya and the Peshwa Nana Sahib, where they are very clearly talking of entering the Doab region, uh, freeing Allahabad Banaras from Sujaudola, and then with or without that Nawaba power, they are going to move into Bengal and attack the British. So, so this is in 1759. 59. Just so with us, so within two years of uh, uh, what do you call uh, Plassey, yes. this has become, and the Dwab region is the region between the Ganga and the Yamuna. Yes. Okay. So then the Dwab, under Awad, and then attack the British. There is a plan to be done in 1759-1760. Unfortunately, because of Panipat, doesn't go through. What does happen is, is that at Battle of Buxar in 1765, the British managed to defeat whatever remains of the Bengal Nawab the Mughals and the armies of Awad. And uh, so then you find that in 1772, the Mughal emperor has actually by now escaped from Delhi and is staying at Allahabad because... Yes, I wanted to ask you about that. So the great Mughal emperor, the ruler of the undivided India and the Shahanshah of Hindustan, he cannot even stay in his own king kingdom. He cannot stay in his own capital, his own fort. Why does he run off to Allahabad? There is and, and, and by the way, it is it is the Marathas that bring him back, right? Yes. Okay. There's a Persian couplet which goes that uh, Sultan Shah Alam as Delhi Tapalam. So from Delhi to Palam, which is your airport in Delhi, that is the only reign of Shah Alam. And uh, so this is what actually was controlling. Now, what happened due to Abdali's victory is that he got his own puppets in Delhi. Uh, Najibuddaullah became uh, more powerful. Uh, the British won at Baksar. And the uh, emperor, that is Shah Alam, decided to stay put at Allahabad with the belief that one day Robert Clive is going to take him to Delhi. And for this, even the Nawab Shujaudullah was also looking in that direction. Around this time, around 1768, 69, 
the marathas mounted the counter offensive and got hold of agra and after that they got hold of delhi for a time it seemed as if the marathas would be defeated in the dwap and the british and the nawab shirodola and the mughal emperor got very interested in all this but eventually it turned out that they won they won in agra they won in delhi and now once they had delhi maharaj sindhya went to ilabad and got the mughal emperor all the way from there to his imperial capital and it was under his protection that the mughal emperor managed to sit on the throne a lot of treaties were signed a lot of conditions were agreed to the mughal emperor had to uh, pay 25 lakhs when he, the marathas freed him in alabad he had to pay 25 lakhs more when he entered delhi more importantly except the wazirul uh, except the wazirul hindustan uh, no appointment could be made by the mughal emperor without asking maharaj sindhya so so let me get this straight the mughal empire did not end in 1857 as we are told uh, you know with the uh, with the deposition of bahadur shah zafar from what you are telling me by the 1760s and early 1770s the mughal empire existed in all but name it was the maratha flag that flew over red fort correct because especially if we go by the treaty of 1771 Uh, between the mughal and maharaj sindhya it is very clearly mentioned that except the appointment of the wazir everything else he has to take permission from the marathas uh, the maratha flag was flying on the fort later on out of courtesy it was taken down but again they hosted it in 1788 so Now, one uh, you know in i think uh, towards the end perhaps one of the last chapters if not the very last chapter is that why didn't the marathas if they had so much of control why didn't they simply throw out the mughal emperor and install themselves in delhi and you cover that in some detail in your book but one of the in in your chapter but one of the points you raise is that even the third battle of panipat was instigated under the the slogan of islam is in danger Yes. and so it was that a credible enough reason for the marathas to have control over the mughal empire in all but name but not you know take the final final step of uh, of throwing out the mughal emperor and putting the you know the 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 maratha right. emperor the, yeah yes abhi so because you know you are looking at a very vast swath Yeah, sorry, I'm 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 here. I'm just yeah. Very vast uh, swath of territory, which would be influenced by, uh, you know, Afghans and Turks and all this. Because even in the sense the Mughal Empire fell, it means that the central authority of the Mughal went, but it gave rise to you know Nawab of Awadh. It gave rise to Nawab of Bengal. It gave rise to you know Fauzdars in Punjab. it allowed the people like abdali a lot of more leverage so you still had a lot of people who were you know second rank commanders in the mughal army and who are now become powerful uh, regional potentates to inside all of them together was a big problem because then you will be facing too many at the same time uh, so to take the decision to remove the mughal it required them to be absolutely Uh, invincible in Punjab, 
and the Avadh region, which is where uh, most of these people uh, drew their power from. The Zamindari existed, the Jagirs existed. So unless they were absolutely sure of destroying the foreign power, I mean, the Turks and the Afghans in Punjab and Dawn, uh, that is two sides of Delhi, there's no point removing the Mughals because Delhi had become an absolute hot potato. People used to keep attacking from any which side, any which direction, any which day. So there's no point in going and taking a headache on your head if you're not, you know, absolutely sure that you have secured this position. And then uh, once the once the East India Company had, uh, you know, one Plassey and then Buxar, and it gave them access to a huge stream of revenue from, you know, the entire Bengal province. And if you look at Bengal in those days, it was basically, you know, all of Bengal and uh, uh, Bangladesh and Bihar and, uh, you know, United Bihar, which is Bihar and, and uh, uh, Jharkhand. So they, did, you know, when they got the opportunity, then they went after the only remaining major power in India, which was the Maratha Empire. And... What happened in 1775, which is the first Anglo-Maratha war, and that resulted in the Treaty of uh, what Surat, I think, right? Yeah. So, what what was that? And because see, from 1775, then we have, I think, in 1882, 1802, 1803, we have the second uh, uh, Anglo-Maratha war, and then basically. By the time I think you write that uh, the Peshwa Bajirao the second realized that the second uh, the treaties that he had signed had uh, were you know going to finish off the Maratha Empire it was too late he uh, couldn't do much and then in eighteen eighteen was the formal end of the Maratha Empire as we know it so what happened what what led to seventeen seventy five is what uh, you know is fascinating yes so. What happened due to Buxar and uh, Plassey is that the British got a base in the east of the country. So two things happened. One is that not only Buxar and this, but after the Nawab of Awadh, uh, Shuja Dola, in about 1773, in fact, he signed a treaty with the British to protect him against the Marathas. So he was threatened by Mahaji Sindhya is going to cross the Ganga and attack his territories. So to avoid that, he decided to write a letter to the British government and ask for their protection. This is 1773. Due to these things, one is that they got access to a large portion of land in India uh, to tax that land, to raise their own army. Secondly, they got access to saltpeter in Awadh, which is even today in very large quantities. And it is the main ingredient of gunpowder. Uh, also, they got access to steel, that is iron ore and tin copper in that our region. So they were a very uh, firm base from where they could build. Coming to the first Anglo-Maratha war, the various reasons why uh, the British decided to suddenly poke their nose in uh, Maratha politics. The primary reason from the British side of uh, view was that the Marathas had decided to give outposts to the French along the western coast especially to a French officer called Lubin. Uh, this is, you should remember, very close to the American War of Revolution. Uh, mm, very close to the American Revolution, 1776. So the East India Company is looking at losing a huge market across the Atlantic Ocean, where again the French are poking them around. And to lose that, 
and at the same time also lose their influence in india or something they could just could not handle um, so the main reason was this that they could not have a french colony in the western coast which extrapolated into meaning that they had to do something about the marathas who were granting the french their trading outposts so this basically led to the uh, first anglo maratha war and they also knew that they had somebody like raghunath rao who was willing to side with them so from the british point of view it was a kind of war where they could you know they believe it was a easy case of winning against the marathas who were supposedly technically inferior and since they had up to that point up to that uh, battle of wadgaon or the first anglo maratha war the british actually haven't lost anything they won at plase they won at baksar they have managed to put the nawab of awards in their pocket they have uh, you know in fact defeated mallara hokar also who is one of the greatest uh, commanders in 18th century india he is defeated the uh, sindh company defeated him at koranir alabad in 1764 or 65 So, given this kind of um, history behind them, they obviously believe that it was easy to topple the Maratha Empire, or at least get past Pune, uh, which is what led to the first Anglo-Maratha War. Now, uh, again, in uh, you write in one of the chapters that uh, even, and this is uh, before the third Anglo-Maratha War, you write that even if uh, you know the Peshwa had had the resources and everything. intelligence was abysmal intelligence basically did not exist on the one hand with the marathas at that time and the british uh, you say that had so much intelligence they actually knew what the peshwa was eating for lunch yes so again go back to the first anglo maratha war 1775 1770 uh, 25 to 82 actually in which the battle of wadgaon was a pivotal battle because that was the campaign that was supposed to put the peshwa out of the reckoning but as it turned out the marathas won after losing this it's important to see how the marathas reacted to it and how the british reacted to it the british found out that their main problems were two one was that their intelligence had completely failed because they had believed that uh, maratha sardar such as the sindhias and the hawkers are going to desert uh pune and they are going to you know join the british as soon as they see some red coats in the vicinity and many other information tidbits are supposed to be correct but to turn out with disinformation uh fed by nana fadnis himself so one intelligence had completely failed second they found that the infrastructure that was present between mumbai and pune for carrying their guns wasn't sufficient they had guns of a different caliber and it took a lot of time to carry those guns up the ghat and it took a lot of time to maneuver those guns in the ghat with the result that uh, the british lost a lot of lives in the khandala ranavala region of today are just descending from there so 1803 when the peshwa uh, bajirao bajirao the second signed the treaty of versailles that is allying with the british first thing they did was to build a proper road and it is still today called very recently it was called wellesley's road after arthur wellesley so it was recently called wellesley's road which was built around 1802 and 03 and improved communication between mumbai and pune and that the british could now very quickly bring soldiers up the ghats 
In fact, if you see Duke's nose, which is near Lonawa, if you have been to this part, there's a hill called Duke's nose. Uh, that Duke is the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley. I see. So, this kind of history with the road, uh, it allowed the British to move a lot of troops. Then it allowed them, of course, then to consider other part that is to build their alliances and build an intelligence network very uh, quickly among the Marathas. Something that the Marathas didn't do in the counter sense. So when it came to 1818, you'll find that the Marathas were totally and completely divided house against the British Empire. In spite of having 200, 300 forts in their hands, they still managed to capitulate within six months. That's tragic. That is uh, tragic uh, how it ended. Uh, so let me now circle back and, and step back and ask you, uh, in the larger scheme of things, why should someone who is not, uh, you know, very, very deeply interested in history, why should someone read up about the Maratha history in India? So, if your Maratha history is more or less the history of India in the 18th century, and even to be given the title uh, Maratha Empire, as it turned out, because of their uh, interaction with the entire country, it has actually become a current history of the entire country. So you'll find somebody like Ayilabai Holkar is influential on building temples and dharamshalas all across India. You find, uh, example, uh, the Battle of Laswari, which was fought at Alwar, near Alwar in 1803. Out of some 10,000 soldiers, only uh, 2,000 odd were native Maharashtrians. And the remaining were Rajputs, Jats, and others, a lot of uh, Muslims, some converted Christians also. And so it was a very, almost, I mean, Indian army, sort of, you can say. To use a one parlance. So, so, some of these uh, kingdoms and and uh, you know uh, princely families they emerged as a result of the rise of the Maratha Empire, right? The Holkers, the Sindhyas, the Shindes, uh, right? Yes, a uh, lot of the families. In fact, separate four or five major families which came up because of the uh, rise of the Maratha Empire. There were many smaller ones also, but mainly you have your Gaikwads of Gujarat, or workers in Indore, uh, Shindes of Gwalar, or Bhosles of Nagpur. These are the main families in large princely states that arose as a result of the expanding Maratha Empire. And again, coming back to your earlier question as to why it's important, it's part of uh, India's history. Uh, it was a very pivotal time. It was a kind of time where you bridge between the Mughal Empire and the British Empire. As you normally read that the uh, control of India went from the Mughals were British. If you read about Maratha history, you find that is not the case. There was an entire Maratha empire in between. So basically, you had the Mughal empire succeeded by the Marathas, and then came the British empire. So we had an indigenous Indian power controlling or having influence over a very large part of India, from whom the British finally took over. And so this is a fascinating slate of hand that modern Indian historians have managed to achieve, right? That uh, they have managed to write or rewrite Indian history to make it appear that the Mughal Empire was a predominant power in the country, 
from whom the British took over as the preeminent power in India, and the Marathas were just one in a long line of uh, localized kingdoms and chiefs that they defeated along the way. This is, uh, I mean, at one level, I have to, uh, you know, I could say that they're dishonest, uh, but uh, on the other hand, I am also in awe of how they've managed to distort history in such seamless a manner, and, and that's uh, another topic. But what areas of Maratha history are you now researching that you think you want to write about or you think have not been explored in detail or in, in you know, generally speaking, Indian history that you uh, are, you know, currently reading up on and therefore we can expect hopefully in the near future uh, another book on? Yes. So in the near future, actually, you have a second volume of this book, Battle of the Maratha Empire. Uh, which will cover some more battles, uh, may not be so politically important or game-changing, but, you know, especially in their own way, you'll find a lot of places which are known places, but the battles are rather unknown. More focus on the cultural contributions, uh, which again I've touched on somewhat in this book, but uh, we'll continue with that because, again, the main reason is that uh, for writing this book is to have one book which covers or the entire span of the Maratha Empire, not only battles, but also their cultural contributions. Because if you just talk about battles, then the obvious question is, okay, fine, after winning this, what did you do? <laughs> and which is why uh, somebody like Ayilabai Hokar or the contribution made to Jagannath Puri uh, becomes very important. Because without winning those battles, it's impossible to go and build those temples. Correct. We look forward to that book because... Uh... You know, winning battles is just one thing, but if you don't do anything after winning a battle, I think then that's an opportunity lost. And we can see that with Ahilya Bhai Holkar, that was not the case. Her cultural contributions are stupendous if you look at it. And I think uh, one of the greatest queens in, in, in history, and we barely know anything about her. We look forward to that. Uh, I'll open this uh, so people please feel free to send in your questions through chat and Q&A. There is uh, one question from Saurabh uh, uh, Lohgaonkar, and he says, Hi, sir, does not completely decimate the op opponent, hampered Marathas at the critical moment. Yes. And I think you're probably also referring to the fact that at uh, Palkhed, uh, even though the Nizam and his army was at, uh, you know, the Peshwa's mercy, he the Nizam got away with signing a treaty. The Nizam, however, had a very different uh, end in mind had he won the battle. So like, Naja, like Nizam or Najib or Shuja kept hampering the progress at Panipat or after that during the Anglo Maratha war, like there was no Vijayanagar moment where an empire is completely decimated. So one thing comes becomes clear is that the Marathas, they would win a battle, they would win, uh, you know, uh, against an opponent, they would make them sign a treaty, they would ask for certain concessions, some taxes, you know, whether it was the, uh, the, the, Chauth or the, uh, you know, other, uh, uh, what do you call, Sardeh uh, correct. They would take that, but uh, they didn't exhibit any of the tendencies of uh, certain other, you know, rulers. Yes. rulers. Yes, this, we could say was a drawback. Uh, the approach of the Marathas was basically to, uh, you know, take control of their opponent. And as long as their opponent agreed to their demands, he could live. In hindsight, how useful was that? I don't know, but definitely they did not have a policy of either sending their opponents to heaven 
and they also did not have a policy of uh, sending their opponents long far away on an exile which the british did on many occasions they sent the peshwa himself to kanpur and they sent the mughal emperor to rangoon to give you just two examples this kind of killer instinct was absent among the marathas that is one point of very valid criticism that they did not finish opponents they did not you know completely dispose of them uh, the british were ruthless in this regard and what is did was that it allowed conflicts to go on for a very long time before they closed so we find that peshwa bajirao defeats the nizam at palkhed in 1728 and in 1795 we find the nizam of hyderabad and maratha still fighting against each other uh, 60 years later so the approach was to slowly slowly take away land from the opponent make him sign treaties this of course meant a much more stable rule or whatever the annex because this was done by mutual consent among everybody uh, the british obviously had to deal with 1857 when the entire policy blew back in their face and but yes the lack of killer instinct was a problem uh, there many examples where you know opponent rule could have been finished you can take the example hyderabad also hyderabad basically had uh, deposed the odayar kings and assumed power in karnataka the marathas fought against him and they defeated him many times but then eventually they came around to understanding where they said okay hyderabad will take charge of the forces going to attack the british in madras and then that led to the pushultan so this kind of you know approach was maybe they had thought of differently about it but from the 21st century you might look like yes you don't have that instinct of finishing of opponents yeah it it's a fascinating question in, in itself you know why they didn't what were the consequences uh so one question has come in from an anonymous attendee who asks it is said that the ganesh utsav was pioneered by shivaji maharaj which bal gangadhar tilak again started similar to tilak did shivaji maharaj too had political motive to start the ganesh utsav uh, so you know what tilak started was a very public ganesh utsav that is the ganesh utsav basically being celebrated in maharashtra for a very long time uh, in homes and even with royal patronage i recently read a book in marathi uh, i think it's called konaki sukhakarta and it is a book which gives you details about this ganesh chaturthi celebrations in india right from the time of chhatrapati shivaji to the very modern times up to lokmanya tilak even bit further on so it was not done by shivaji maharaj or others to have this sort of you know um, communal mixing of people because what lokmanya tilak wanted to do is to bring people together and fight against the british empire and it became a very sarvajanik public festival people came out on the streets the podiums put up the place being enacted there were a lot of skits enacted where the um, you know ganesha kills the british women and all this they started off in the streets of pune prior to that it was uh, a festival celebrating homes it had a lot of royal patronage you will find many letters etc of the peshwa era especially uh, you will find where lots of money has been given gifts have been given so yes it has been a important festival in maharashtra for a long time uh, shivaji's time chhatrapati shivaji's time of course you had your kasba uh, ganpati which is more or less considered to be the uh, gram devata of pune actually nobody 
is exactly sure which is the gram bearer because there are three four contenders for this. But it is considered a very important temple, one of the oldest temples in Pune. And Tatarbati uh, Shivaji's mother Jizaba is credited to have built that temple, one of the versions of it, 1636. So Ganesha has been a very important deity of Maharashtra right from a very early time. It has continued to the present day. Uh, Rahul Sastrabuddha has a question. Please throw please a light on the role of the last Bajirao in Indian history. And I assume you're referring to Bajirao uh, the second. Second. Yeah. So the Peshwa Bajirao, actually, he came to power at a very weird time. I mean, most unfortunate thing to happen in Indian history was the earlier Peshwa, Savai Madhavarao, drying dying in 1795-96. It is not clear whether it was an accident or he committed suicide or somebody pushed him, but in that year he died. He was only 21 years old. In any other normal circumstance, he was supposed to be the Peshwa for at least next 30 years. That is a normal lifespan of around 50 years. Uh, because he died, uh, Peshwa Bajirao had a chance to come on the Peshwa ship. And his role in uh, Indian history, when was, I guess, signing the Treaty of Versailles against with the British, which was a huge blunder, whichever way you look at it, because it meant that the British could now poke their nose into the Maratha Empire's affairs. But till that time, the, the Marathas, at the end of the 18th century, a lot of infighting going on, the Horkars against India, Sindhya, and Peshwa against Horkar, and all this ruckus is going on. But the British were out of all this. They could not, and they were very anxious to find a toehold. They were very anxious to find a toehold because a person called Napoleon Bonaparte had managed to reach Egypt. So they had taken Egypt, and from Egypt, India is hardly any distance away. And it was his stated aim to control this trading route that went to IS Suez. Uh, Suez Canal came much later, but there was an overland route via Suez which had been in existence for a very long time, where you had ships sail right up to port side and then they get their goods off and then went across the desert and then again put them one more ship and took it to Europe. It was a very fast way of moving stuff and Napoleon basically got hold of the trade route. So the British were very anxious to get the French who were influencing India at that point of time out of the country because there were very real concerns from their point of view that uh, Napoleon or one of the French commanders, a proper French army going to land themselves in India. And that would be curtains for their British colonies. At this point of time, to sign the Treaty of Versailles, it meant that the British could have a toehold in Indian politics. They immediately declared war against Sindhya and Raghuji, uh, sorry, the Bhosles of Nagpur, which led to the Second Anglo-Maratha War. So basically, uh, we talk about Peshwa Bajirao II. His actions contributed to the Second Anglo Maratha War. Interesting, interesting. There's one, uh, there's one more question. This has come from Samir Patel. Do we know anything of the intelligence network of the Marathas? It's a very broad question. Very broad you know. question. Uh, so, one thing is that uh, there is no documentation available for intelligence networks, which is very obvious. Uh, <laughs> so you have to uh, see in terms of results achieved. 
now for example you have some names here and there you know bahirji nai for example but just like you have name like ajit doval you know ajit doval is part of your intelligence apparatus but obviously he is not doing everything there are a lot of nameless faceless people who are actually doing the i mean ajit doval himself doing work but there are nameless people who are in the shadows working and keeping the country safe whose name will never be known who will never be shown on any official records but we know that the work is happening because you and me are sitting comfortably having a zoom chat Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Find throughout uh, Maratha history or any history, you find a lot of incidences where intelligence has played a crucial role. Abdul Khan's killing is one example. The uh, Shahistha Khan episode is one more example where he gets his fingers cut. It is impossible that without somebody going there, having a complete knowledge of what's happening inside that camp, Shivaji Maharaj would have attempted that kind of adventure. Very and, true. And so on. You find a lot of instances where. Uh, the result shows that uh, some inside information had become available to them, uh, which has been via spies and intelligence networks. Very true. So, Anish, with this brings us to the close of the Q and A, and uh, you know, very thankful to the audience, to the you know participants who sent in their questions, and I want to thank you for taking the time. to come on this uh, q and a and also answer not just the questions but to shed light on so many things that uh, you know uh, when these are facts known to some of us they are present in books but i think when you you someone like you brings them together and weaves a, a very coherent narrative i think it just uh, brings history alive to everyone and uh, we have sent out so indic book club has sent out Uh, some copies of uh, Anish's book, Battles of the Maratha Empire. This book is available on Amazon, and uh, it is available, I believe, both as obviously as a paperback, but also as an e-book. Yes. So you can read this book in either of the two forms, and I would encourage you to follow Anish at author Anish on Twitter, and uh, please do engage with him. Get copies of his book, read it, share it, distribute it with others, talk about it. Do if you read the book and if you like it, I would also encourage you to leave a rating and a review if you can on Amazon because it is one of the ways in which people get to know about and it helps them make decisions about purchasing a book. and finally finally uh, do follow us on twitter at indic book club and also join our facebook group at facebook.com/groups/indicbookclub we will put this video up uh, on youtube in a few days and we'll uh, send out the link we'll post it on facebook and twitter and elsewhere and i will close by giving you anish the last word yes thank you very much for the invitation it was absolutely wonderful conversation uh I hope I've increased people's knowledge about Maratha Empire a little bit through this conversation, and I look forward to more such events with Indic Academy. Thank you, Anish. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thanks.